the greatest problems in the world, uh, listen, it's not climate change, it's not political asylum seekers, the problems that are greatest in the world are not outside of me, but inside of me. They're within me. The greatest issue, the fall, is within me. You're listening to the Shoreline Church podcast with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. Today we continue our Incarnate series. Today's message is titled, Logos Incarnate. So our text this morning, if you have your Bibles, is John chapter 1. So please turn with me to John chapter 1. Again, if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand high. And we will get a Bible. We all need a Bible. You can turn in your uh, Bible app if you have a piece of technology. You can go to the Bible app and look under events for Shoreline and follow along. John chapter 1, verse 14. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. We're only covering one verse today uh, in depth, but we will be expositing this one verse. Verse 14, John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. We commit this time to you and pray that you would speak by the Spirit of God through the teaching, the expositing of the scripture. We ask, Lord, that you would draw us, Father, to Christ. And so as we fix and align and center our attention, our affections, our minds on Christ, Uh, Lord, on heaven, setting our minds on things above, not on earthly things. Help us today to uh, just experience your goodness, your pleasure, uh, and Lord, to be equipped and encouraged this time of year. We commit this service, this sermon to you and pray that we would receive from you as we offer up our attention span, as we offer up the ability to take notes, as we offer up, Lord, uh, fixing our eyes uh, on what you would want to teach us through this incredible doctrine of the incarnation. Today, Lord, be glorified, not just in our church, but in the, the gathering of the churches around this community. And there's many, Lord. We just pray that today, in every pulpit in Bradenton, Sarasota, Lakewood Ranch, the word of God would be preached and Jesus would be on full display. So we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. How far back can you trace your genealogy? I was thinking about this recently with our family, and uh, my grandfather in March, went, uh, April, went to be with the Lord, uh, and so it made me kind of think, I have my grandfather and then his family, you know, his parents and then their parents, and start tracing back our genealogy a little bit. Have you ever done a genealogy? Apparently some people have done their genealogy. Uh, this is becoming big business. I don't know if you know this, but the number of people right now who have, have gone on a website to track their DNA, their family tree, uh, so to speak, um, has doubled since this last year. It's now up to 12 million people. 12 million people have gone on either Ancestry.com or 23andMe or a Family Tree DNA or MyHeritage, uh, and, and they've tried to find out. One in 25 American adults have done this. So just a, a straw poll here this morning. How many of you, raise your hand, have gone on a website to to track your family history. Okay, both of you have. Okay, great. Well, the number's a little bit different here. And so if we were to trace the genealogy or the ancestry, the lineage of Jesus, of Nazareth, how far back would we need to go? Uh, This time of year, we would say, well, we'd go back to the manger and maybe Mary, and maybe we'd go a little bit further back. And we'd say that's when Jesus' life began. And we're saying that in great error. We would say Jesus' life began in the manger, and that is absolutely in error. Many people would say, well, no, uh, the true biblical uh, origin of Jesus is surprising. And so today, we're going to see the word made flesh, the word incarnate, And so the title for today's sermon is simply Logos Incarnate. Uh, We are in a three-week series on the incarnation. And last week, with the rain, uh, we were able to look at uh, the prophecy in Isaiah 42, who prophesied that this Messiah would come and he would deal with being a servant of all. And he would put an end to sin, but at the same time... Uh, He would deal justice to the Gentiles, and and in his work, he would do it in such a gentle way that even those who were bruised and those who were set aside, cast aside by the culture, by the community, by the world, would be those who he lovingly, gently deals with. 
Uh, and so some of us missed that message because of the rain. Many of us got it. Uh, but today, we're going to see the pre-incarnate Christ and the importance of why Jesus came as a man. And so the Apostle John begins his gospel. We looked at verse 14, but rewind to verse 1, the very first verse of John's gospel. We studied this because like, we're going through the gospel of John verse by verse. We studied this months ago, but look again at verse 1. John says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness has not overcome it. If we were to ask Mark to give us the genealogy of Jesus, Mark would actually skip it. Mark goes straight into the ministry of John the Baptist. Mark is, of course, the action gospel. He has a lot of, of then and immediately and right then and now. And so Mark kind of skips over. Uh, he's kind of the action-packed gospel. Uh, if you were to uh, look at Matthew and say, Matthew, what is the genealogy of Jesus? Matthew would go back through Joseph, going back to Abraham, and give us kind of Jesus as the Messiah, his right for the throne, his kingly right to the throne, the legal claim to David's throne. Luke, if we were to ask him, he'd say, oh, let's trace Jesus' genealogy through Mary all the way back to Adam. And so he would show Jesus' rightful claim to humanity. Uh, as Luke is writing to Gentiles, Matthew is writing to the Jews. John was writing to all the world. And so how far back does John go? John says, this is going to take a little while. We're going to rewind and reset the clock all the way back, even before the beginning of creation. And he says, just in the absolute beginning. And shows the world Jesus' true deity. Look again at verse 14, church. Look at verse 14. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why does it not say, and the Lord became flesh, the Lord? Why does it say word, the word? Now, if, you're, um, if you were given a Bible, that's fine. If you have your Bible, I want you to notice in verse 14 that the word word, all right, track with me, that word, word, is capitalized, and it should be capitalized. This is not a typo. All right, please don't try to erase it. We don't believe in the eraser Bible here at Shoreline. Uh, we, don't, we don't erase things. Don't call your Christian you know, publisher at the bookstore. The word, word, in verse 14 should be capitalized. And so before we kind of get into this, I want you to take some notes down. This is the word that is a Greek word. It's the word logos. If you put it on the screen, it's the word logos. Uh, it looks like logos, but it's the word um, logos. It looks like Legos, but it's not. Uh, we translate this word, word, um, and that's not incorrect, but there's so much more going on underneath the surface of just, if we just called it word. It's, it's, there's a lot more going on. And so for a minute, I just want to give us an idea of what this means and then make some points, all right? So just for a minute, what does it mean to, to have a word? What is a word? A, a word in English, if we were to just say the word word, it's a, it's, a, it's a unit of speech that we use to express a thought to someone else. And so I want to say something to you. I'm going to express a, a, a thought by using a specific word. Uh, some of you with younger kids, you remember when your kids got hurt and, you know, you can you can gauge the um, pain level of your children by how long that first breath is. Uh, that they kind of breathe before they start crying, you're like, oh, this was a four-second. Uh, this is a bad <laughs> injury. Uh, but then, then you go, what's the matter? What's the matter? Use your words, and then you find out Junior's crying because of his teddy bear. I can't find it. And so you're like, okay, things are good, and no problem. We have to use their words. You could say this on the screen, that a word is simply a thought communicated. Okay? So track with me. A word is just a thought communicated. Uh, now, when we said logos, it meant something different to different people. So the Greeks would use the word logos, or word, uh, in a very specific way. Um, their philosophy um, was that this was an impersonal and divine kind of force that was unchanging and held the, the, the world, the chaotic world, uh, together and would guide the world, almost like uh, the founders of America were kind of deists. So they believed that there's kind of an impersonal force holding the world together. 
And so uh, this one particular Greek, Heraclitus, he would say um, that this word, logos, could be interchanged with God. It could be interchanged with fire. It could be interchanged with reason or logic. You just use those terms interchangeably. Nothing personal. This wasn't like a personality. This is just kind of a force, uh, an idea. And so then Plato came along, and he emphasized um, that this logos, this force that was impersonal and unchanging, actually kept the planets on course and determined our seasons. We have winter, spring, summer, and fall because of the logos. The Stoics came along, and they believed that logos was the world reason or the manager of the world. And there was a little bit more of a personality, a little more semi-personal. Well, then Philo came along, and he personified the concept. He said, no, logos is, quote, the high priest that sets the soul of man before God. Philo said that the, the logos is the bridge between man and God. Philo said that the logos is the tiller by which the pilot of the universe steers all things. So the Greeks heard something when you said logos. Now, the, the Jews, the Hebrews, heard something totally different. So when you heard the word logos as, as a Hebrew, um, you would say, I believe in the power of the spoken word. There's something about speaking the word. God speaks creation through his voice. Remember the patriarchs would give their blessing. And remember there was one patriarch in particular that his hands were crossed. And once he pronounced the blessing, the blessing was pronounced. You can't, you can't pull it back, it's given. And so God's logos was, was his powerful and his effective action as he creates, as he delivers, and as he judges. He's speaking Judgment, he's speaking creation, he's speaking deliverance. And so when you were an Old Testament prophet and you said, thus saith the Lord, I'm representing God, I'm speaking for him. And of course you were wrong, you were incorrect, that's basically you're a false prophet, you should be stoned. But if you were standing in that place representing God, then now everything that you said and the people who received from you said, this is as if God himself were speaking uh, to me. This is a representative of God. You guys remember in Proverbs chapter 8, where wisdom was personified as God's first creation and God's agent of all creation. God was the one speaking by his word, his logos, um, he was speaking all things into existence. And so when they took the uh, Old Testament and translated it into Greek, we call it the Septuagint, and they would read it in the synagogue... When they got to the name of God, they didn't want to break the second commandment and take God's name in vain. And so they would pause and they would say Logos as an alternative to the unmentionable name of the Lord. They didn't want to mispronounce it. So they would stop and say Logos. So in general, to both the, uh, the Greeks and to the Hebrews, the word Logos is powerful. We just say word, but it was so powerful. There's something to it. In fact, Eastern people don't believe a word is just something you say. They believe it, it actually has power. Uh, there's a story of a guy named Sir Adam uh, Smith, and he was traveling through the desert, and some Muslims came along and pronounced their blessing, peace be upon you. But then they found out he was a Christian. And they said, oh, whoa, 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 can we, they like found him later, and they came back to him, uh, and they said, um, we didn't realize you're a Christian, and we just spoke a blessing to an infidel, and so can we have our blessing back? Uh, they, they asked for their blessing back. That's how powerful your word was in the East. Now today, we wouldn't say our words have a powerful, uh, you know, independent existence, but our words matter, don't they? Our, our church, does our, do our words matter? Our words are important. All the husbands can say amen. Our, our words are important, husbands. Can I have some fun for a minute? Uh, our words are important, guys. So your wife comes to you, and um, she says, how do I look? And she asks you, she's getting ready. It's a, it's a Christmas party at your work, and she's got herself all dolled up. She goes, how do I look? And, and you know the next thing that comes out of your mouth is gonna determine how your evening's gonna go. You guys know this. The whole car ride there is gonna be affected if you don't say the right thing. In fact, there is no right thing to say, is there? There's not, nothing you say is gonna be right. You say, you look fine, honey. And then she gives you the long, quiet, like it's not good that your wife's quiet at that moment. She's fine. Oh, I look fine? No, no, I, not, no, you look good. You look like, no, I mean like you look fine. Like you're fine. Like you look really fine. She's like, oh, so, so now, I'm a, I, now I'm just an object of, of, of pleasure. And you're like, no, 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 no. No, like you're stunning. You're unbelievable. You're gorgeous. You're amazing. You're a model. And she's like, now you're just being 
lying. You're right. So um, we're just stuck in that moment. So help us out, ladies. Just take the fine because you use it back. You use it back. We're like, how are you doing? Are you okay? And you're like, I'm fine. Right? So you use it too. And you're not fine. Right? So think of some of the words that we say that are, are meaningless or that we regret. Right? Talk about pulling our blessing back, pulling our words back. Think of the things we say. I, I remember when I told people, yeah, I used to work at Apple. I'd be happy to help. <laughs> I regret saying that. Uh, some of us have said like, oh, sure, I love dogs. Right? We regret saying that. Some of us say, yeah, I own a truck. I own a truck. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, why don't you bring the kids? <laughs> we regret that. Hey, why don't you stay for dinner? Regret that. No, we have plenty of room. There's, there's things that we say that we regret. Words matter. And so listen, John is writing this to both Jews, both Greeks, both have their own idea of what logos means. One person said this on the screen. They, the listener, should have understood that just as words are the expression of thoughts, so we've defined it today, so to call Christ the word was to regard him, Jesus, as the communication of the divine wisdom. He is the personal revelation of the truth of God. He was not just the communicator, but the communication itself. He did not merely tell God's truth, he was the truth, John 14, 6. You see, a word is composed of letters, and Christ says, I am the alpha and the omega. I am the A to Z. I'm all of it in between. One little girl, I love this, very simple theology, said Jesus was all that God wanted to say. And she's not wrong. She's correct. And so uh, Jesus is the very mind, the very uh, being of God. He is the expression, the intelligence, the will, and the power of God. Colossians 2.8 says that it pleased God to have all of his fullness of the deity dwell within Jesus bodily. And so the fact that Jesus is the Logos, the word, the communication of God, shows us that God wants us to hear his heart. He wants us to know who he is. He wants us to receive uh, who he is. And so God, in the past, revealing himself through history, through nature, today in these last days, Hebrews 1 says he wants to reveal himself through his son. So if you're taking note this morning, uh, we're only covering this one verse, but I want to look at four important aspects of this verse. So uh, please jot these down. We're going to take notes together. Number one, the word existed before the foundation of the world. The word existed before the foundation of the world. Uh, Jesus, you could say, was not created. He was incarnated. Look back at verse one of John chapter one. It says, in the beginning was the word. So Mark's gospel takes us to the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he was baptized. Uh, Matthew and Luke take us to the beginning of Jesus' birth, and even prior to his birth when the angel spoke to Mary about being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and that she would give uh, even though she uh, was still a virgin. Uh, and so those first three words, in the beginning, should be familiar. In the beginning. Moses starts Genesis with those words, but he was referring to the beginning of creation. John goes back further than Matthew, Mark, Luke, or even Moses in Genesis and says in the beginning, not the beginning of Jesus' life on earth, all the way back to the existence of God. Brian Broderson says, if we were to write someone's biography, we would naturally begin with the person's birth. But for one person in history, life did not begin at birth. Jesus Christ, before being conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, preexisted eternally with the Father. And so if you're taking note, under this we would say that Jesus, theologically, was pre-existent. Jesus was pre-existent. Before Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, he existed. Uh, prior to his incarnation, Jesus existed as one with the Father, glorified and exalted and unified. And so a lot of us, like, we have this weird concept of God that, that God created man because he was lonely and just needed someone to kind of keep him company uh, and wanted companionship like your kids in the summertime with a puppy. And because he didn't want heaven without us, he created uh, us and then sent Jesus to save us. And that's not a correct notion. 
Uh, Jesus, uh, or the Father didn't uh, need to create us to fill a void of happiness or satisfaction that he was lacking. No, the Trinity was already experiencing complete oneness, complete fellowship uh, before the beginning of creation. There's that wonderful unity, and we'll get to that in the first of the year when we see Jesus' prayer. And so Jesus was with God from the beginning. He was preexistent. He was distinct from the Father. Look again at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. There it is. But then it says the word was God. So not only was Jesus preexistent, he was self-existent. Jesus is not one of the created little G-gods that the world runs after, the little idols. He's not a created being. And so as the Jews were reading this verse in John's day, they would have been absolutely rocked. They would have been shocked. um, And they would have said, wait a minute, no, we believe in monotheism. This, this doesn't seem right. But when John says the word was God, he's not referring to dualism, like two gods, or tritheism, three gods. He's, he's speaking about the Trinitarian God, one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So the word uh, was preexistent uh, before the creation of the world. Secondly, if you guys are taking note, I want you to write this down. This is kind of, again, understanding the importance of the incarnation. Uh, secondly, the word, according to verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. You could say it this way. Jesus put on humanity and lived an incarnate life. Got a, uh, somebody, somebody tagged me on Facebook last night. It was Narisa Smith who runs our SOS ministry. And I get tagged a lot, and sometimes I'm not sure. I'll get these alerts. You've been tagged on Facebook. And I go, uh-oh, what is that? <laughs> who's, who's tagging me? What, is, what are they connecting me with? Well, Narisa uh, was pointing out that uh, she, I, I kind of messed up some of, of, uh, of your views of the nativity. So I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry that, that I have affected some people's view of the nativity. Uh, last year and subsequent years, uh, it's important that we understand what happened at the nativity. Uh, and I'm just trying to make nativities great again. I, I'm just trying, I'm doing my part to just try to help. But the three wise men, first of all, there weren't just three, there were three gifts, but there's probably many wise men. Uh, and they weren't there at the birth of Jesus. So I always take them and remove them from the nativity. I used to take them, which is kind of mean. Uh, but, but at least separate them, put a sticky note, and say two or three years later. Let's just be biblically honest with our nativity scenes, all right? So, but, but for a minute, church, when we look at our nativity scenes, think about, we kind of simplify it or we, we, we make it kind of almost cartoonish. But when you look at the nativity scene, the next time you look at it, again, you'll, you'll see the sticky note in your head, but, but the next time you look at it, I want you for a minute to think about the power of what took place there. And that the power of what took place there should move us to almost perplexity, right? right? When we see a nativity scene, I think a lot of times we, we miss what's happening. We can kind of introduce a bunch of silly notions, you know, uh, we, we, there's, there's sheep and the oxen and and the donkeys keeping time to the drummer boy's tune, and we, we miss and, or cheapen the marvel of what actually happened. Martin Luther said it this way, the mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh, is beyond all human understanding. C.S. Lewis considers the incarnation the central miracle that's asserted by Christians. So just consider what this means for a minute, that the word became flesh. That means the Father overshadowed the Virgin Mary and that she conceived the Lord Jesus in human flesh. And because of the virgin conception, the triune God uh, now created a new human nature for the Son. Jesus didn't lose anything. He added the human nature. And this human nature, uh, we must believe this, was sinless, okay? Unfallen, untainted by the effects of the fall. You and I not so, not so, you know, generous, right? You and I, we're all born with a birth defect, so to speak. We've been born uh, with rebellion towards God. And so though Jesus was born into a human body, he didn't share the disposition of Adam's sin, which was passed to all of humanity. And I believe through the line of man, I could be wrong, but he does not link back through Joseph or Adam. And so Jesus never sinned, nor could he. And so the scriptures tell us that Jesus Though he was tempted like we all all are, he was yet fully and perfectly obedient to the Father. Uh, Here's a verse for you, Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. The writer of Hebrews says, Consequently, 
when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offering, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Just leave that up for a minute. Consider this, church, that a body was prepared for Jesus. It wasn't enough for Christ to kind of come down and float along in his robe as kind of a divine ghost, kind of an earthly deity presence and kind of sort of experience life on the earth. Any more than when you put your scuba gear on and you go into the ocean, that doesn't make you a fish. You kind of experience what it's like to be underwater, but it wouldn't take long. All I have to do is swim up next to you, remove your mask, and you're going to realize I'm not a fish, right? I, I need to come back to the surface. I'm pseudo-experiencing this. No, Jesus didn't come and kind of pseudo-float along. Uh, no, he put on a body. The Father prepared a body for Jesus. And at the virgin conception, the Christ, pre-existent, self-existent, one with the Father, became a child. Now, now when you consider that, it should, it should cause us almost to scratch our head. Wow, this, it's beyond understanding. As Luther said, it's beyond comprehension comprehension. Uh, the babe in the manger and, and the star and the shepherds. Man, why was it so important for Jesus to be born into a human body? I want you to think about this as I read this quote. And this quote from John Piper really shook me a little bit this week as I read it. Here's what John Piper says. He says, Jesus needed, think about his body, he needed to have a broad back so that there was a place for the whip. He needed to have feet so there was a place for spikes. The incarnation is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails. The incarnation is the preparation of a brow for thorns to press through. He needed to have a side so that there was a place for the sword to go in. He needed cheeks, and you can see Mary and Joseph kind of squeezing them. He needed cheeks, fleshy cheeks, why? So that Judas would have a place to kiss, and there would be a place for the spit to run down that the soldiers put on it. He needed a brain and a spinal column with no vinegar and no gall so that the exquisiteness of the pain could be fully felt. Wow. The word became, think of this, the word became flesh, deity clothed in our humanity. And then the verse 14 goes on to say that he dwelt among us. If you're taking note here, the word for dwelt uh, means tabernacled, or you can translate it, that he pitched his tent. He pitched his tent. I love this. When Lot remember, pitched his tent in Genesis towards Sodom and Gomorrah. He was making his home towards the city. He pitched it towards there. Remember, in the, uh, the camp of Israel, the tabernacle was the place where you would go and meet with God. So in a sense, Jesus becoming flesh, dwelling with us, means he was making his home with us, that he is now the place where we go to meet, to tabernacle with the Father. Jesus is the place where the law of Moses is now preserved. Jesus is the place of revelation, right? We no longer need to go into the temple to make sacrifices because he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we have a center to our camp. We have a center to our worship. And it's not the tabernacle, and it's not the latest Chris Tomlin song. No, we no longer need a physical temple because Jesus himself is that place of understanding who the Father is. And so when Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 talks about his earthly tent, uh, first glance, you might think he's speaking about camping. He's not. He's not speaking about camping or his tent-making bivocational ministry job. No, he is speaking about his human earthly body. He says, this is my tent. And so when Jesus came and pitched his tent among us, he put on his human body to dwell with us and become one of us. So now we, because of that, can enter into fellowship with the Father, not at the temple in Jerusalem, uh, not at the Western Wall, not even here in this room. It's, it's not through this church building, I hope you know this, that we come and meet with God. Some of you are like, thank the Lord, because this is a lame church building. This is a gym, right? You guys know this. I think we get this. But, you know, in about two hours, where you're sitting now will be uh, drib, they'll be dribbling, they'll be sweating, this will be a basketball court. Uh, this is not the place where we go and meet with uh, God. No, there's nothing holy or mystical or spiritual about this building. It's not through this church building we meet through God. It's through Jesus, amen? 
Here's what Hebrews 13, 15 says. It says, through Jesus, therefore, let us, that's the church, continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. It's through Jesus. It's not through a priest. It's not through a, a church service. It's not through Joy FM on the radio, for sure. It's not through those means. It's only through Jesus that we are offering a sacrifice of praise. So not only was the word preexistent, not only was the word bodily uh, coming to dwell with us, but thirdly, if you're jotting these down, write this down. Number three, the word displays the glory of God. Look at verse 14 again. It says, we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, church, the glory that Jesus manifests is the glory of God. Uh, he doesn't receive this glory from man. He doesn't seek his own glory. Uh, this is not a borrowed radiance, like, Father, can I borrow some of this radiance and share it and shine it? No, Jesus' glory is his, and it's his by right. Um, in the Lord's Prayer, some of you are like, oh, our Father who art in heaven. No, that's the disciples' prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in John chapter 17. Now, I want to reference it for a moment. John chapter 17, here's what Jesus says in verse 4 and 5. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, look at this, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so Jesus uh, had this glory before he came from heaven to earth. Now, this idea of glory, there's three important aspects to this that I want us to jot down. These are, these are three things you need to leave today knowing about the glory of Jesus, okay? First of all, note with me that the glory of God in verse 14 was beheld but not shared, okay? It was beheld but not shared. Uh, on the screen, if you're taking note, Isaiah 42, 8 tells us that the Father says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, uh, nor my praise to carve idols. God's not here to share his glory with creation. And I think sometimes we can move dangerously close to believing or even singing some silly notion, it's just silly, that God wants to give me his glory. Like, God, give me your glory. Right? Uh, show me your glory. No, give me your glory. I want some of that glory. However, in Christ, it's really interesting, only in Christ, there's this biblical notion, though, that through Jesus, he does extend his glory to us. Back to John 17, look at this, verse 22. He says, the glory you've given me, I've given to them, the disciples, us, that they may be one even as we are one. Wow, this is fascinating. So it's not a shared glory, and yet through Christ, it is something that Jesus wants to give to the disciples to make them one as the Father and Jesus are one. Uh, David Gusick says there's a lot of ways Jesus gives his glory to his people. There's the glory of his word, there's the, the glory of his presence, the glory of his power, the glory of his spirit. Uh, and David Gusick says, we don't have it on the screen, but he says, in all these aspects, the essential aspect is the presence of Jesus, God the Son. Scripturally speaking, when God gives or displays his glory to his people, it's some type of manifestation of God's presence. And so God's glory is in some way the radiance or shining of his essential nature in the presence of Christ. Isn't that awesome? And so scripture proclaims Jesus is the express image of the invisible God, and he proceeded from the Father. He came to display the glory of God in the person uh, of Christ. Uh, John 14, 9. Remember, the disciples were like, hey, like, just show us the Father. And Jesus says, actually, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And so Jesus came to put the glory of God on full display. Remember, prior to that, you couldn't look at the glory of God and live. It's kind of a problem, but in Christ now, because of the Logos incarnate, we can behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so uh, the first thing we note is that only in Christ do we see the glory displayed and shared with, with those of us who are in Christ. Secondly, though, the glory of God um, was achieved through Christ's humility. Uh, he has the glory of the Father in, in, the, uh, in the beginning, but we, we actually see it demonstrated through Christ's humility. Uh, Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus humbled himself and became a man, and that's how we were able to understand the fullness of the Father's attributes. Uh, it was through humbling himself. And so because of the humility of Christ, we see the glory of God. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, but thirdly, 
This third aspect of his glory is that, listen, it's revealed to the children of God by faith. It's revealed to us by faith. John, in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, says, we have seen his glory. This is the idea that we, as the believers in Jesus, are the ones that behold the glory. The world doesn't get it. The world doesn't see it. The world mocks it. Oh, that's a little eight-pound, six-ounce, cute little baby Jesus. They don't understand uh, the actual um, glory of Christ. And so John says, no, those who have repented of their sin, who trust their eternal life to Christ, who are regenerated by the Spirit, are able to truly behold his splendor. Again, John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am. What? To see my glory. John, in verse 14, says, we've seen it. It's the glory as of the only Son of the Father, and he's full of grace and truth. Only those in Christ can partake in uh, really seeing that glory. Only those in Christ understand the humility necessary to achieve that glory, and we're the only ones that ultimately behold that. Now, the reason I'm saying all that, those three points, is that, listen, that is the exact opposite of the glory the world seeks to, uh, to achieve. Think about that for a minute. The world understands glory exactly opposite of that. The world says, hey, take the glory. Demand the glory. Take the credit. Get the limelight. I mean, just look, and I'll call myself out. Look at our tweets. Look at our posts. Look at our status updates. We're constantly proclaiming our glory to the world. We do this. Even the way we filter it. I got to get the right angle. Oh, my hair's bad in this one. Let's fix it. And we constantly want to put our best person forward and, and give ourselves glory. The world says, do that. The world says, step on others and take the credit and climb the corporate ladder. And as you're doing that, you're stealing and robbing and removing the glory from others to exalt and highlight yourself. You're gonna diminish the advances and achievements of others by exalting and minimize your own weaknesses and exalt yourself. Whereas Jesus displays the glory of God, listen, not through ascension, but through condescension. Jesus reveals the glory of God through humility, and it's not forced upon us. Take my glory. No, it's revealed to us by faith, and it's radiant. I love this picture of the glory of God, and, and that, I think, is what maybe the, the, the shepherds heard when they said, glory to God in the highest. The highest glory that God can achieve is found in the lowest place that Christ condescended, into human flesh, wrapped in humanity. And that brings us to our final aspect of the Logos this morning. If you're taking note, a number four, the word embodied, in the truest sense of that word, embodied grace and truth. Uh, Jesus emanates from the Father and is full of these two attributes. Look at verse 16 with me. John chapter one, verse 16. It says, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Can you guys say that with me? Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. And then he says in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then he says, we just mentioned this, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, he has made him known. Now look back at verse 16 with me. I just had you say it, grace upon grace. But if we were to translate this more accurately, it would read this way, grace for grace, or actually very literally, grace replacing grace. This is amazing. You and I, according to John, cannot, listen, cannot exhaust God's bountiful storehouse of grace. His grace knows no limit. His grace knows no interruption, no end. And what he's saying here uh, is that you have enough grace for this situation. And you, can tr you might feel like you're, you're running out of grace. Well, you can exchange that for more grace. And then you feel like you're exhausting that grace and exchange it for more. Only through Christ, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Pastors are scared to teach on this because they're afraid that the people are gonna over-respond and, and go out and sin and then think that grace would abound. And Paul says, by no means, that's so foolish to think that way, uh, that, that oh, I can... And so, no, grace, his kindness leads us to repentance. It's his unmerited favor bestowed on the undeserving. And he says, that is found in Christ. But not only grace, also truth, uh, truth. Uh, Jesus is the fullness of what is righteous and faithful and honest. And both grace and truth are fully realized in Jesus. Listen, Jesus at the same time offers the fullness of grace to sinners, and yet at the same time, he does not approve evil. 
He doesn't say, yeah, just go on. Like, keep, like, I'm good with sin. Just keep, no. No, sin cost Jesus his life. Jesus speaks truth. He lives truth. He upholds truth. He is the truth. He condemns sin. He doesn't condone it. Uh, yet he also lays down his life to satisfy the wrath of God against lawlessness. And so when the law came through Moses, hey, the law was holy and good. But all it did was reveal man's sinfulness and impotence to save himself. And uh, we know this, like a mirror, you guys hopefully used a mirror this morning. Can you nod your head in approval if you used a mirror in any way this morning? Yeah, several mirrors. You're checking the side view, the rear view, you're looking in the mirror. You check the mirror. The mirror uh, helped reflect what you're giving it. It says this is what you look like. It brought revelation. And some of us this morning missed the mark. And thankfully, that, um, that mirror helped us. Oh man, I, I really missed the mark. The hair is off and I gotta fix it. But listen, the mirror, the law, uh, could enforce truth, but powerless to supply grace, powerless to change us. So the law commanded, but did not enable. Only in Christ do we have the command and the power to obey. You can compare Jesus to any other religion. Only in Christ do we see fullness of grace and truth. So the word embodied grace and truth. The word displayed the glory of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word existed before the foundation of the world. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you and I in 2018 as we go into this next very busy, very hectic, very stressful season? I wanna draw two points of application from our text. So if you're taking note, I wanna jot these two things down. You take a picture of the screen, but these are two things for us to kind of walk away with. Number one, the incarnation, first of all, means, listen, Jesus identifies with me. Uh, my favorite Christmas song, we're gonna sing it in a moment, O Holy Night, says, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Listen, Jesus is not some far off transcendent deity who will answer just the big prayer request, but don't trifle with me on the day-to-day -day needs. No, uh, that means Jesus understands. This is familiar with our suffering. Jesus came and became Emmanuel, God with us, to identify with us, to put on humanity, that he was tempted in all ways, yet was without sin. He dwelt, he didn't just from afar, let me broadcast the good news. No, he came as one of us. I read a story this week, um, it was just in New York last, uh, about a week, a week and a half ago, uh, two weeks ago, and I, I read this story. There was apparently a, a sting operation where a narcotic squad of detectives went into an apartment building, and they broke in, and they were astonished. They found dozens of um, homeless people who were basically laying around in this apartment and, and, and utilizing this, uh, what they thought was abandoned space, and um, some of them had narcotics on them, and so they were arrested. Well, then they found out that there was one particular looking um, homeless man that, that was really gaunt and really um, just underfed and malnourished, and they took him aside and he said, no, I, I own this place, and they kind of laughed. Well, they did some research and they found out that not only was um, this man uh, not homeless, he did own that, he was also a philanthropist who was worth multi-millions of dollars uh, and he was basically wanting to help the homeless community by providing a space for them. And not just a space for them to live in, but he actually lived with them to identify with them, to help them. I thought, wow, that's fascinating. What a picture uh, of, of, of condescension, of willingness to come and to serve the least of these. He lived among them to provide for them. What a picture. A Athanasius, uh, in his work on the incarnation, said this, the Lord did not come to just make a display. He came to heal and to teach suffering men. For one who wanted to make a display, the thing would have been just to appear and dazzle the beholders. But for him who came to heal and to teach the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him and to be manifested according as they could bear it, not vitiating the value of the divine appearing by exceeding their capacity to receive it. Essentially, what he means is that Jesus came not just to show off, but to identify, to be one of us. What a great joy that brings me to know that this time of year, I'm not alone. Can I just acknowledge, some of you this year, or the last few years, this time of year is difficult. When you go into the holidays, you're thinking of a lost loved one. You're thinking of 
of, of a husband, a spouse that passed away recently, or, or, or a grandparent, or a father, or a mother, or a child, and a miscarriage, and you walk into the Christmas season, and it's kind of a loss. It's a, it's a deep place of grief, and I want you to know that the Lord is with you, and I don't mean that in a, in a trite way. He is with you. Emmanuel, God with us. You're not alone this Christmas. Even if the holidays are bittersweet and that person's not with you, God is with you. Jesus, in the personal work of Christ, identifies with us. And man, that should change the way we view Christmas. Secondly, though, second point of application. The incarnation, church, means that, listen, my sin cost God his only son. Jesus was incarnated, according to the Chalcedonian Creed, for us and for our salvation. Galatians 1.4 says, he who gave himself for our sins, for our sins, why? To deliver us, to rescue us from the present evil age. He gave himself for our sins. Listen, the gospel doesn't begin in the manger. It begins in Genesis 3.15 when it was proclaimed that the seed of woman would crush Satan's head as his own heel was bruised. When I see that nativity, when I see the babe in the manger, I see what it cost my heavenly father uh, to send his own son and put on human flesh and die in my place and give himself for my sin to rescue me. It wasn't your neighbor's sin. Go ahead and look at them in the eye and tell them it was my sin. Go ahead. It was my sin. Go ahead. It, it was my sin. You might as well say it was your sin as well. Just have fun with it. It was your sin. It was your sin. It was my sin. Don't miss this, church. On the screen, Romans 8. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, for your sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Listen, church, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? That means the greatest problems are not outside of me. The greatest problems in the world, uh, listen, it's not climate change. It's not political asylum seekers. The problems that are greatest in the world are not outside of me, but inside of me. They're within me. The greatest issue, the fall, is within me. And Timothy Keller says Christmas is the end of thinking you're better than someone else. Because Christmas is telling you, you could never get to heaven on your own. God had to come to you. Church, the incarnation shows us the great length that God would go in his love to save us, to pursue us. He died for sin, for your sin, for my sin. Jesus was incarnated to ultimately bring about the justice of God and the mercy of God. Jesus was incarnated to identify with us to be one of us. Let that sink in for a minute. In that song, O Holy Night, as we reflect on the incarnate Christ, you can close your Bibles, and I just wanna close with a pastor's challenge for this week, specifically this week. Here's my pastor's challenge. I wanna invite you this morning to come to Jesus for new grace. What do you mean new grace? What is that about? Well, we just read in this text, grace upon grace, upon grace, grace for, grace, grace replacing, grace we could say, new grace. He says his mercies are new every morning. This morning, many of you, maybe not all of you, have received grace for your salvation. You've been regenerated by the Spirit of God, and there is grace for that salvation. But church, there's also grace for our sanctification, amen? There's grace for the battle. Uh, there's grace for our scenarios we're living in. And we could go to the Lord this morning to be replenished over and over and over as we grow in our walk with Jesus. Maybe this morning you need to come to Jesus and receive more grace today. Maybe new grace. Maybe this morning, and, and why don't we do it this way? Why don't we bow our heads for a minute? Maybe there's grace for your marriage. I'm just gonna list some things. And as I list these, maybe that's you and you, you just respond by raising your hand. You don't need to say, that's me. But maybe these are some areas you need grace for. And I just want to acknowledge you if you raise your hand and I'll pray for you. Maybe for you, it's grace for your marriage. Uh, you say, Pastor, I need grace for my spouse. I need grace for how I'm responding. I need grace to love my husband or my wife well. I keep trying to change them, but I need to call out to the Lord and receive grace because the one I'm calling out to made them and they know them better than I do. So yeah, grace for your marriage. You can put your hands down. Some of you need grace in your grieving. You need grace this morning, new grace in your grief. 
you've been thinking about a loss. You're like, Father, just give me grace today. You know, the Father sent his son. He identifies with us. He knows. He's familiar with suffering. So I see some hands. Grace in your grieving. Grace in your, your mourning. You need grace? <laughs> Maybe in a practical way. Raise your hand for your finances. Yeah, I just need, Lord, I need grace. I need, I need to trust you. I'm, I'm, I'm about to retire. I, I'm going into this season a little bit strapped. I'm stressed. Lord, I don't want anxiety to get in the way. I want to trust you. So give me grace today to trust you. Even if everything falls apart, even if everything collapses, I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. It's no gospel at all. I believe in a God who is sovereign. And if he chooses to prosper me, if he chooses to give me a time of trial, then I trust him. Raise your hand if that's you. You need grace for your finances. Today, do you need grace to run your race and slay your sin? You, you've been battling this temptation. Lord, I need new grace. I'm failing. Or I'm, I'm getting really tempted. Lord, please, I need your grace. Would you draw me with cords of kindness? I see your hands. Anyone else need grace to fight the good fight? You're going through a trial right now, and you need grace. Lord, I just need to have stained grace in the midst of this. I need to endure this hardship, and I just need to have faith in you. Those of you who have raised your hand, thank the Lord for that humility. Anyone else this morning, you just need uh, just an unspoken need for grace in your life. Is there anyone this morning, as you put your hands down, who needs grace for salvation? You say, Pastor, I'm not a Christian, I'm not born again, but I acknowledge today that God sent his only son to die on the cross in my place, and I want today to be the day that I repent of my sins, turn away from my sin, and turn towards God by faith and receive what Christ did on the cross for me as penalty, as payment for my sin. I wanna believe in Jesus today for the first time. Is there anyone here grace for salvation? You raise your hand. Anyone this morning? I wanna pray for those of us who have raised our hands and just thank the Lord for that grace. Father, thank you that we can be strengthened by your grace. And so, Lord, we come today for grace upon grace, grace replacing grace. Lord, by definition, it's not something we earn or deserve. It's unmerited favor. So we've done nothing to merit it today, but we are raising our hand by faith, just asking. As we approach the throne of grace, Lord, we would do so with confidence in our time of need. Whatever it is today, marriage, mourning, it may be finances, it may just be uh, temptation, it may be to walk by faith and not by sight. Give us the grace we need, Lord, to run the race, finish, finish well, fight the good fight. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son, taking our place, dying in our place, putting on humanity, the word made flesh. We just commit the rest of our time to you as we worship you, as we thank you, as we sing to you, we love you, we commit the rest of our time to you as we lift up one voice as a church and sing of what you've accomplished for us in that incredible night. Lord, we just commit our time to you. It's in Christ's name, the church of God says, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing and proclaim that holy night? Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.